welcome to Kaplan's Learn Better podcast. My name is Stuart Pedley-Smith, Head of Learning at Kaplan UK. In this series, you're going to hear from both students and experts as we take a look at a range of topics related to personal and career success in the world of accountancy and finance. My guest today is Ross McWilliam, an accomplished speaker, trainer and author who helps people and organisations develop positive mindsets. He's here today to talk to us about well-being. People are probably more aware of the term well-being along with mental health, amplified maybe by COVID, but perhaps also due to a recognition of its growing importance in terms of its impact on how we cope with setback, challenges and how we feel about everyday life. What I want to understand from Ross is what exactly is well-being and how can we have more control perhaps harnessing our mental state to help us achieve greater success in exams, careers, and maybe even get a little happier along the way. Ross, thanks for joining me today on the Kaplan Learn Better podcast. Thank you, Stuart. It's, uh, on the surface, it's a simple answer. What is well-being? How we feel about ourselves um, in one sense. But there's more to it than that. And, and well-being is, as the word says, our, our being is well so what is wellness? Is it about maximising the enjoyment in life, um, going along with the challenges, taking on the challenges? Because life, generally speaking, isn't happy, clappy, 24-7. It's maybe rising and, and dropping with the, the, the pressures and the expectations and, and the triumphs in life, the ups and downs. If we can do that quite well, we, we'll, we'll probably have some measure of, of enjoyment and well-being. It's also very much linked to awareness. What, how are we aware that we're living a, a good life, an enjoyable life? And that is the secret to well-being, right? Having the awareness to know when we're being compromised and then know how to improve it when that happens. And if we can do that proactively rather than reactively, then that's a great thing. So in essence to your question, Stuart, to enjoy life, to reach our potential, to deal with the ups and downs, and to feel good about things and don't feel guilty about that and congratulate ourselves on our little victories and and don't magnify some of the disappointments we have in life and and just you know do that and if you can contribute to other people's livelihoods as well that that's real well-being yeah and i suppose who doesn't want to do that do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know um, i suppose that the things in there that that are perhaps worth unpacking are around the world you know this idea of there's an element of self-awareness isn't there this idea you know to actually just stop one moment and just think how well do i feel you don't do that every day do you You don't you don't suddenly stop in the middle of the day or in the middle of the flow of a conversation and go is this is this working for me am i coping very well and am i enjoying life so that's the first big thing i suppose isn't it You've got to develop beyond the awareness, then the habit of doing that, of being aware. It's all right to say I'm aware, then you've got to demonstrate it. And that's where positive change happens, when you demonstrate it and demonstrate it without thinking. So it becomes a natural habit. So that ability to go somewhere and just think, hey, it's a nice day. Oh, I feel pretty good today. The body's behaving itself. I'm contributing to other people. Hey, I've got a puncture, but you know what? At least they get me the tires checked at the same time. Seeing that upside of something, that well-being, is all about that. Because we can very quickly put ourselves down a real cul-de-sac of negative thinking, which leads to poor responses and then shocking sometimes consequences in terms of our behaviours. And the obvious one is like getting angry and upset. And so... 
it, it is about a habit. And if the habit's very good and it's, it's something you've done and practiced, worked at consciously, when we get to a subconscious level, you're doing it without thinking, which is brilliant. And I suppose that's that sort of Zen-like sort of position that you're sort of aiming to get to, where I suppose suddenly you just find yourself able to cope better than you did before. But let's say we're at this... Let's say we're at this junction where you're saying, right, so well-being is about feeling well about yourself. You stop and you do a little bit of a, a check. What sort of internal or external things should, should people look for as by way of a check? What can they see if they think back on their day and their behaviours? What would be the things of it not being so good and then perhaps being good? Well, when you constantly go into a negative outcome, so something happens, you're going straight to the negative straight away. So that, that's a thinking paradigm. We can get into it, a negative one. There's a part of the brain called the reticular activating center. And if you program that to look for good stuff, then you can then do it subconsciously. For instance, this general well-being mindset of recognizing there is upsides in stuff. So I think that's the first thing, that paradigm shift. I think secondly, and more obviously, is the body is a great way of telling you when it's not happy, it's not in well-being. And so when that happens, it's something that's been probably building up for a while and it's something we need to address and we can't just suck it up and get on with it and be more resilient and push on through it and don't be so weak and what people think about me. All those negative questions where you don't get, a, you don't get any benefit from and you've got to be more, these days, I think, mm. more vulnerable with yourself. Be quicker to recognise the positives and, and don't beat yourself up so much. So that's the way, sort of, sort of signs of thinking. The body can tell you that as well. The best sign is when you go into a room and people's faces light up and they don't go down on the floor. That's the great sign that you've got something going on well. You've travelled extensively and you've had a variety of different jobs but you've chosen this area to sort of I suppose make your own really and specialize what is it that you're finding that's so useful in your career almost about well-being that that you, you want to spend time talking about it yeah if you disregard well-being or don't give it enough respect it will come knocking on your door and it'll come knocking on different ways sometimes it'll knock on the front door and it will go, whoa, you've got to stop mm. because you're not going to go any further than this. Sometimes it'll go around the back door and give you little warning signs. There's something there that's not quite right, something annoying. And if we ignore it, that can make a bigger problem later on. So, you know, that ability to be, again, I'll say it again, that awareness of your well-being is something that I've come as I've got older. Uh, I'm at the ripe old age of 60 and I've always had a healthy interest in education. And in the last... 20 years more so in mindset and not in a, a clever, sophisticated, wholly academic way, although I've got many academic qualifications. I try and understand for me, well-being, what is it that will allow me to perform to my maximum? And the same question to other people I work with, what's going to help them perform to the maximum? Not at breakneck speed, not at the cost of our our emotional mental health, but something that, that works together, that fits together, that's a good fit, that allows people to express themselves and, and enjoy life. The more you enjoy something, the more it shows, the more people are pulled towards you and they want, what's that guy doing? What is he doing? How's he doing it? Well, let's go and talk to him. 
And again, if you don't be didactic and don't be preacher teachery and just listen to people and they pick up on it. And I've had that for the last five years. And for me, the last five years have been seminal for me. It's not about what I know, mm. but how do I engage other people? Non-judgmental listening. Um, I'm there for people. I've made time. I feel good about myself and my body. I'm not saying my body and myself are perfect, but I know how to work in flow now. And I, I work with my body and my mind rather than against it. There was a time, Stuart, where if I don't fill every single minute of that day with something productive, then it's not been a productive day. And now it took me a long time to realize a simple equation that more often than not, I've got to spend time away from the head-on work to make the head-on work more effective. For those analytical types, it's an efficient, it's, you know, there is a, there's a logical justification for looking after yourself in the same way that you would keep yourself physically fit. I mean, you must be sitting there sort of looking at the Olympics through a kind of a different measure than, than, than others are. But I, I, I find that the one overriding thing about it that they've all talked about is the spirit and the attitude and the fact, you know what I mean? So underneath those successes that you measure, the physicality, the, all the hard work and the preparation, you know, and I think it was Petey and they interviewed him and they said, you know, why are you doing so well? And he said, because we believe we can. Do you know what I mean? So much of their performance is driven by their positive well-being, isn't it? You know, you get two athletes who are at the peak of their physical fitness and what a difficult time it's been for athletes, you know, to get even to that level. But the thing that seems to be making the the team difference or that, that different split second literally split second result is the attitude and the positivity that the, the team seem to have yeah there's an individual belief there's a collective belief that so that's contagious and everybody feels it and then you get the feedback from a good performance or a good heat and that hey it is right we're on the right thing and i think the danger though um is that and i've just written an article for, for a rugby league magazine about this does this being better, the best, that's fueled by a belief, does it come at the expense of mental health? Because that's quite prevalent in the Olympics. Mm. And, and I think as a society, we've come a lot further in the last five years, and certainly the last two with COVID, to recognise it's not always win at all costs. Now, we've got to give the percentage effort in there and, and the background preparation, the belief you've said. But if that then crosses over that dangerous line where you feel emotionally compromised, psychologically not making the right decisions, can impact the memory and concentration, then it's certainly going to work against your performance. So you've got to nudge up to that line, know where that line is, and stress is the underlying thing we're talking about here, uh, that frequency, intensity, and duration. If we get those, that balance of, of those factors, those three factors in there, then we'll do really, really well, we'll reach our max. That is what I think the top athletes do and the top teams working together. And this is where it's interesting, where they support each other on that and to keep them and recognise when somebody's struggling a little bit to bring them back onto that top of that wave again. And I think that's the, the interesting bit rather than just suck it up and get on with it, man up and all those phrases. We seem to lose those, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. Hi, my name's Hada Ali and I'm a final year management accounting apprentice from Derby, currently studying SEMA. To help my well-being while studying for an exam, I like to work in allocated blocks of time, usually around 90 minutes, where I 
focus on a particular piece of revision. After that 90 minute block, I like to make sure that I'm doing something to help my mental well-being. So that can be something as simple as just stretching my legs for five minutes by going for a walk outside, for example, if the weather's nice, having a, a light snack, drinking some water to make sure that I've got enough fluids and staying hydrated. These little things are really simple but great in helping you maintain your mental well-being when preparing for an exam. The most productive and efficient way I've personally found is by working in those sort of key blocks where your attention span is maximised and then you've got something to recharge in between before you have another go at learning anything more. Ross, can I just move on? I, I mentioned before you'd got your five pillars. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about those? Yeah, there's sort of three and a two. Sleep, diet and exercise. Um, people commonly um, think they know what to do with those. And, and generally speaking, that could be true. But there's a bespoke nature to it. So, for instance, diet for you and me, Stuart, we could... We could say, yeah, these foods are good, but they might not agree with you or you might not like them. So there's differences. So you can talk generally about, you know, vegetables and fruits, not eating too late in terms of reducing that caffeine because caffeine's a spike for, for, for a bit of nervousness in some people. In others, it's not. It's a good stimulant. Um, so there's lots of being covered on, on, on diet. And the thing is with diet, you don't necessarily get immediate feedback. So it's very hard to say if that's helping or not. And you've got to be quite forensic about this and go through that for a period of, of time to do that. But it is a big factor, and we're learning more and more about that. Um, the sleep is something that we all know, and I could say to you, well, you know, people at our age, Stuart, just approaching 60 and 60, we should be getting around um, eight hours. <laughs> 49, that'll do, yeah. <laughs> 49 and 60 then. We, we should get, you know, eight hours, but... You know, there are, you know, there's a lot of sleep doctors that Matthew Walker talks about in different aspects of sleep. But if you read around some of the, the writers on that, um, it's finding what works for you. And if you have one night where it's less than that and you're still performing OK, that's fine. And you might have a catch up later on. But six hours, given what you're doing the next day, might be sufficient. It's when we start worrying about it unduly. I haven't had me eight hours. I haven't had me eight hours. We're not in flow. We're compromising our well-being. Well, let's just see how the day feels today. I haven't had as much as I want to. But that's how it feels. And take it in your stride. That flow again is very powerful. Sleep is an interesting one, isn't it? You know, don't eat three hours before you go to bed. But the thing is not to worry about it too much. I used to wake up panicking thinking, oh my God, I'm not sleeping. And I think I've developed a good strategy that works for me. And, and life's not perfect. Understanding the nuances of life is very powerful within sleep. So, you know, caffeine, avoid that. Late night eating, um, eating less. Fasting is very good for sleeping. And, and I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that when we're not eating, it's a very good cleansing mechanism, um, short and long term for us. There's so much wrapped up around sleep that um, people see it as the window to well-being. And, and I think it is a big part of it, but it's not essential or exclusive to it. So the next foundation I talk about um, is exercise. And when I say exercise, people constantly go to a knee jerk. You're moving in a gym with weights and on running machines? Not necessarily. And I think we found out during COVID and lockdown in particular that going outdoors 
being connected to nature, the vitamin D. If we go and exercise, here's a strange one for you, exercise in forests, the chemicals from the leaves are very good for calming us almost instantly. And we don't get that effect in inner city. So things, being outdoors, um, doing some stretching, doing some exercising, but distracting yourself so you don't know you're doing it. And a great example of that might be doing some gardening. Now, obviously, if you want to balance stuff out and get the heart rate up even more, then you do that and supplement it with some, some exercises to get the heart rate up. But again, it's all relative to what you do and your age especially. Don't try and beat your time every single time. And I think that's the obsessive nature of exercise, which is a very good coping mechanism, a producer of well-being, but it can also pull away from you. So sleep, diet and exercise are the three ones that we think we know most about, but once we dig underneath them, we have the nuances. The one I'm really interested in is, is being connected. And being connected, and I also put in brackets here, being vulnerable. So when I say connected, uh, and again, we've had some, some poor experience of this during COVID where we've been isolated, we've been told and forced to isolate. And if you live alone, um, this is something that could really impact you on, on a large long-term scale. We know that being connected with other people, doing something together where we don't feel judged, we feel supported, is essential, absolutely essential for our well-being. Uh, and I think this human nature, when we feel connected, the good chemicals in our body, the endorphins, even the oxytocin, the love hormones, the, the, all the good stuff in our body starts being produced. And if that's being produced, guess what? The cortisol and adrenaline is being reduced and compromised in a good way. So I'm a big believer in being connected. And I, and I think that's something that we sometimes take for granted. Yeah, and I think, I think that's a point um ross isn't it that sort of you know why do people go to football matches when they can watch them from the comfort of their own home you know that term being connected with the world has a sort of connected with people connotation in it isn't it you know there's there's the the natural side of it but being connected is probably one of the biggest things that people have forgotten and, and you know we're we're trying to figure out will students come back to classrooms um, and when you look at the learning science part of it, there's a strong argument to say that, you know, you can do ever such a lot as we are now remotely. But the idea of being connected with somebody else is very, very difficult to replicate because you're not in their proximity. You know, uh, we're, we're not close. We're not physically in the same room. And therefore, it's a kind of completely different experience, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's, there's, a, there's a barrier. And when there's barriers, you know, that can hinder us somewhat. And I think connectivity is powerful. We've mentioned that. But the final thing, if you allow me, Stuart, is just to talk about the self-esteem and purpose. And we know in many psychological disorders, not all of them, but in many of them, when we get compromised lack of belief in ourselves, this self-esteem, this self-worth, this lack of belief that, that we were something, we're going somewhere, then it can open the door for a lot of other challenges. We don't call them problems, we call them challenges within mental health. So self-esteem is at the core of who we are. We've got to believe in ourselves without running around the world and saying I'm the best thing since sliced bread, but believing in that you've got capabilities and abilities, you're a work in progress. And each day it's an opportunity to learn, to grow, to be better, to enjoy. There's that word enjoy again. But, but that is linked to purpose. And if we've got a purpose in life, and that purpose can change, it's essential for development and you'll see so many times where somebody can be fit and healthy physically emotionally but without a purpose that can be lost and very quickly 
they'll never find, some of them will never find their way out of that lost position, that isolation. So having that purpose in life is so powerful and people take it for granted. Yeah. So, so that's, that, that's your five pillars, Ross. It, it's sleep, diet, exercise, connection to the world and self-esteem and confidence. So, so those five pillars, how, you know, if we, if we put this into the learning landscape and we say, how does, do those things, are they, how do they affect people who are, you know, studying towards high stake examinations? What, what's, what, which are the ones that you'd pick out perhaps as being the most important? It depends on age an age profile of somebody, somebody younger can get through, they're more resilient than what they think and they can probably get by on a little less sleep and not a great diet and their body's still performing well and, and they haven't got, I don't know, they've they got very high aspirations, which can be good, which can be bad. But I think, you know, for, for people who are doing any sort of challenge, it's about preparation and nothing comes to you through luck. It, it, it's through, generally speaking, you're preparing yourself for that. Knowing how to learn how to memorize, how to apply it, how to perform in a test. They're great things. And if you get it really good at this, if we talk about exams, for example, there's so many different techniques out there, like the power hour of 20 minutes study and five minutes re revising, recalling, and then five minutes break and repeat. That's very powerful, very powerful stuff. But once you get in that zone for doing that, it becomes the impossible to inevitable. It really is. My name's Neve Houlihan and I'm a project financial controller based in Derbyshire. To help my well-being during my exam period, um, I really try to keep myself in a routine. Uh, I think routine's really important to sort of not get too stressed um, and, and keep your head in the game. So generally, um, I try to do a couple of hours revision before work. So I'll try and get up and go for a walk, um, have some breakfast, etc so that I'm sort of in, in the right headspace to then crack on with some revision. Then I will do my day at work and then I'll do a couple of hours after work as well. It's really important for me that in those couple of hours after work where my brain is starting to sort of dip a little bit, that I give myself the appropriate amount of breaks and stay hydrated and reward myself with snacks because that always helps. Of, of your pillars, the one the one for me that sort of resonates most with studying, and, and I say I hope that people have seen the the comparison between the athlete and the way that yeah the the fact that if if you're not in t top physical performance and you're not your me mental state isn't good, it doesn't matter how good your knowledge is when you have to perform on the day. There's all you know your mind wanders, you can't concentrate, all those sort of things. So the well-being sits alongside that, doesn't it? And the self-esteem and confidence is something that is continually there, and and something that drives your ability to be motivated. Because if you if you talk, you can talk yourself out of something eventually, can't you? At some point, just by saying, "Well, I, I'm not good enough. I, I can never do this. I'm fooling myself." Yeah, you can do it consciously, or it happens subconsciously in your aspirations. I'm not going to go for that because if I fail it, then that's not where I want to be. I'm a success machine. I don't want to have any failure. So people can dumb down their aspirations to fall in line with the thought of where they want to be. 
avoid failure at all costs. And we know from some of the great leading academics that fail fantastically. Learn from your failures and then put into practice next time. It's all a building process. So if you're prepared to have lots of self-esteem on this and confidence and not being scared to say and do and think things and fail fantastically, it's just a matter of time. And remember this, it's not always who gets there first that wins, although at the Olympics that is the case. But in life, generally speaking, it's as long as you get there. Okay, and I think that's an important thing to remember. But you're right, Stuart, that self-esteem is the heart of, of how we think of ourselves consciously, subconsciously, our aspirations, our, our, our sort of inner fears, that imposter syndrome that we can put on ourselves. And then it becomes, as you said, a self-fulfilling prophecy that, okay, I'm not so good enough. I'll do this. I tell you I won't get it. Why do it in the first place? And, and really, you know, you're almost guaranteed to get what you wanted, which was failure. <laughs> doesn't make sense does it <laughs> at all <laughs> right so I, I want to move you on to some of the practical things once we've got an understanding that you know well-being and you, i think you, you, you gave us a very clear understanding as to how you can uh, understand your you can address your own well-being but what are the things that you can do what are the positives you talked about power hour. i'm just wondering if there are other things that you would um ask people to to think about yeah, well, the power hour was, was done by a world memory expert called Jay Cross. And um, he had, similar to myself, failed a lot of exams. But he, he figured out mm. a system of how to memorize. And he became the world memory champion. So, therefore, he's done something right. And, and then, you know, he says, well, I've distilled this down to easy bite-sized stuff that people can use every day, people can do to pass exams. And, you know, part of that is the power hour. A part of it is, I mentioned before, that preparation. A part of it is belief and aspiration. A part of it is organisation and planning. These aren't highly academic concepts to understand. There's lots of practical things out there that people do, and it starts with you. But you've got to put a bit of work in. But, but the biggest thing that puts boys off sometimes, um, and men to that extent, I haven't got four or five hours to study to do that. I just can't. I've got to play football. I'd rather watch Coronation Street. I'd rather do something else. Well, do you know what? It doesn't have to be that long. In fact, you, you, your body and your brain especially work better on shorter impacts uh, of, of learning. It's about not the learning time, it's the recall time. And if we can recall more often in a way that suits your learning style, and mine was very kinesthetic and practical, then it's just a matter of time. So those things are very important. And it comes back to what we said before about developing some good habits and not going to that bit where we're self-sacrificing our own self-esteem because we don't think we're good enough or we're doing the big C word, comparing to somebody else. And that's where you start losing all your energy. And it's about your game. Yeah, I was quite struck by something that you said when we spoke earlier that was working at 85%, which once again is another sport in metaphor really isn't it and you know you sort of like i'm i always work at 100 percent. i give everything but i was quite struck about this idea that if, that you you should work at 85 percent. you just want to add something to that yeah i came across that when i was working with some very challenged young children who had a very in some cases horrendous upbringing um who were you know struggling to interact struggling to learn struggling to form relationships and I went for this job and the, the head teacher said, we want you to work at 85%. And a part of me lit up. I thought, this is a great job, 85%. I don't have to give it 100%. He said, because there'll be times, more often than not, we'll have to stretch up and reach out and help these young people in very fractious and fraught situations. And if you're constantly 100%, 
you've got no capacity left. So understanding the gap, that 15% capacity gap is very important. You know, and we can run 100%, yeah, we can do, but we can't run 100% 100% of the time. And understanding that and not feeling guilty for that is a very powerful concept to understand and then to implement. If you're working at 100% all the time and then you have to give 110, something something is, is going to give. Can I, can I ask you, I mean, I've stumbled through a, a few of the key highlights. Is there one magic sort of thing that you would like to leave people with? Um, I'll probably greedy and give you two. So I think feedback is very powerful. And feedback at the right time on your journey is crucial. We can't live in isolation and put our heads down and just keep push, push, pushing. We need to take account of what's going on around us and take those variables on board and adapt. Like a plane traveling on thermals, going slightly one different direction and hitting another thermal slightly different direction, but still going the same general mm. direction to get somewhere, but maybe in little slight detours. And that's what feedback does. It brings us back to that, that straight path again. So that's the first thing. The other thing that we haven't really mentioned, and it's a bit generic, but I want to mention it now, is that hope and recovery, whether that's well-being, whether it's your own personal life, we can sometimes give up on stuff. And people, we're the worst, our own worst enemies, are writing ourselves off. And then, as you said before, Stuart, we look for the confirming evidence that somebody doesn't want me for a job or the girlfriend or boyfriend doesn't want me anymore or nobody likes me. And then, oh, that's neat. That's right. That's who we are. I find my box in life. I'm going to sit in that box and, you know, the classical wait for God. Uh, for me, no, there's no box. And I'll be looking to improve without compromising my well-being accepting where I am in the world, and this is language to myself, but it's language to anybody, accept where you are in the world, challenge it if you need to, but don't compare yourself. There's so many academics sharper than me uh, doing stuff, and I'm thinking, well, why should I bother? They've got a handle on this better than me. But there's a place for everybody, and it's up to you to know where your place is. And I think that's where recovery, it comes in and reflection. Ross, that's brilliant. And have you got a website? Are there resources that people can pick up on some of these things? Or? Yes, it is www.mindsetpro.co.uk. I'll just Google Ross McWilliam, have a look, see what you think, then come back to me. Ross, um, thanks for joining me on the Kaplan Learn Better podcast. It's been my pleasure, Stuart. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Kaplan's Learn Better podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. And don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find us. Let's continue the conversation. Follow us on social at Kaplan UK and let us know what you'd like to hear discussed on future episodes.